0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today, we'll be talking to my good friend. We go way back to five points. He's a good friend and journalist, Peter Hamby. We're going to talk to him about impeachment 2.0. But before I get to my conversation with Peter, I wanted to dive into this recent impeachment we just went through. In case you missed it, this past Saturday, the Senate acquitted former President Trump by a vote of 57 to 43. And I say in case you missed it because I want people listening to this show to know that more people watched the new NCIS this week than watched the impeachment hearings on all the major networks combined. So NCIS had a better showing this week than the impeachment hearings on all the major networks. So sometimes we got to get out of our bubble a little bit and just know that everybody's not watching and on the same political wavelength that we are. But this week the Senate acquitted former president 5743 in order to convict there needed to be 67 votes. So we fell 10 Republican votes short to hold the president accountable for his role in January 6th insurrection. This is all despite overwhelming evidence showing the president's role in citing the insurrection and a phenomenal job from the House impeachment managers. But this result was to be expected. And if anything, the seven Republican senators that joined every Senate Democrat, Senator Sass, Romney, Burr, Cassidy, Murkowski, and Collins, was more than I anticipated. So this was a bipartisan decision, not just bipartisan enough. And while I know my friends on Twitter felt like that witnesses would have changed the result, they're wrong. This wasn't about evidence or witnesses. This was about power and the fear of Donald Trump that keeps 43 Republicans from growing a spine. What should be clear by now is that the remaining Republicans who voted to acquit Trump are who we thought they were. Trump loyalists, more afraid of Republican primary voters and Trump himself intervening in their next election than actually responding to an insurrection where their own lives were at risk. Imagine that a mob was there to kill you sent by the former president and you still wouldn't convict him. But again, this is what we should have expected from the same crowd who was okay with Charlottesville, family separation at the borders, open voter voter suppression, silence in response to police violence. This is who they are. And if you've looked at the states they've run, many Republicans have long been unfit to serve. So you shouldn't be disappointed here because it's who they are. And that's why when we talk about eliminating the filibuster, I don't hesitate to call for it to end because only one party is here to lead. Reconciliation is absolutely necessary for relief measures, and we don't need a single Republican vote for any of it. When a party shows you they're unfit to lead, You believe them, and you go on about your business of moving this country without them if necessary. And that's that on that. Now on to our conversation with my good friend, Peter Hamby.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
0: Well, welcome to the Bukari Sellers Podcast. I have my good friend with me today, Peter Hamby. What's going on, Peter? How are you? I'm good, Bukhari. How's the East Coast? The East Coast is lovely. The East Coast is the best coast. You know, me, many people don't know this, but Peter and I go way back to five points in 2007, 2008 when we were having a lot of fun. Uh, and Peter was a CNN embed. So we've known each other for now 13, 14 years, man.
2: That's true. That's true. And you only got mad at me one time over a story.
0: <laughs> that is that's that is approximately uh, 14 times less than, than <laughs> I've gotten mad at J-Mart over a story. So there, there we go. We start each of our conversations with our guests walking us through the arc of your career. And you started your career at CNN, a traditional outlet, but you now run the news shop for Snapchat. A non-traditional news outlet. Talk about the shift from the traditional establishment news to a newer outlet like Snapchat and how the landscape is for uh, where people get their news is now shifting.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the bigger picture is that, you know, as a former CNN employee or current CNN employee, but the average viewer of CNN is like 60 years old. And that's true with MSNBC, Fox, like TV news uh, has an essential place in our, in our democracy. But most of the people watching my political show on Snapchat, Good Luck America, uh, are under the age of 25. Um, and millions of them are watching it. Uh, but it's a different ecosystem than the one that we're used to in, in D.C. and New York, where you know, traditional news outlets, um, TV news outlets, sort of dominate the conversation. As you know, you know, not being a full-time resident of D.C., most people in this country don't follow politics obsessively. They don't watch cable news all the time. They don't read political. What? They, the they don't? Times. No, believe it. They don't, um, they don't, they don't wake up and, and, and
0: read the political newsletter every morning like I do. Shocking.
2: Shocking. I know. Um, but that's the world I inhabit. I mean, I think the goal of my show at Snap has been to bring political news to an audience and a generation that isn't uh, necessarily political obsessive. Um, politically obsessive rather that doesn't mean my viewers are dumb or not interested in news or politics i think most people especially young people are incredibly earnest and want to know more it's just hard to find high quality credible news out there it's hard to make sense of the world i mean i think the success of the of the daily is like a good example we've been doing that same model for four or five years now where here's one thing you need to know today and like let's explain it um and then we do that on snap and but let's talk about snap real quick
0: because i didn't even know snapchat had news until you went there so (laughs) (laughs) oh well okay shit well then it makes sense well so talk a little bit about how the platform how that platform specifically how it works and how people can follow what you and your team are doing on Snapchat? Because a lot of people who watch or listen to the Bakari Sellers podcast, a great original name there, are your traditional cable news watchers, but they're seeking out more news, and so they would be people who want to see what young people are, are watching and listening to. How do they do that? And what separates you from I don't know Morning Joe?
2: Man, a lot. Uh, you know, I think I think the the Bakari Sellers podcast is an example. Like if you think about cable news and network television. Look at the ads that you see. Like it's mostly pharmaceutical ads geared toward old people. I think the podcast universe is mostly people in our demo, like people in their 30s, 40s, maybe 50s, who maybe don't have cable, but they like spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. And then my audience is more Gen Z, teenagers, college students. Um, so, you know, on Snapchat, we have a section called Discover. And uh, for people listening who don't use Snapchat, you might think of it as the place where you put You know, funny filters on your faces or your dog's face or your kid's face. And certainly that's a huge part of our product and what makes it fun. Um, You know, it's a place where people talk to their friends and family. But on Discover, we at Snap made a commitment early on to be a credible source of information. And so we partnered with, you know, NBC News and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, along with ESPN, BuzzFeed, Cosmo, like sort of any big name publisher to create content for Snapchat. My show is a part of that we have you know scores of original shows that exist only on snapchat that have you know uh, loyal audiences but if you're listening to this and you've heard a lot about facebook and twitter and youtube and instagram and whatsapp having all these problems with disinformation and fake news and hate speech privacy the name you don't hear in the mix is snapchat because you know Early on, Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snap, made a decision that we're going to have a different set of values at this platform, which is one reason they hired me in the first place back in 2015, a journalist to build out a news team and hire other journalists and also to partner with credible news organizations to put content on Snap. And it's working. I mean, we are almost twice as big as Twitter, Snapchat. um, And we're also... Yeah, we are substantially big. This is, again, this is a thing that people in D.C., don't quite understand because they're addicted I'm to I'm not
0: dirt. in fucking DC stuff. you're in that world, you're in that world. I'm in that I'm world on these too. I'm on these dirt roads of the country south, sipping my sweet tea on the sure, porch watching, yeah, yeah, yeah. You and
2: Jamie Harrison on the dirt road. Um, <laughs> the uh you know, I DC the political world is preoccupied yeah. with Twitter. I mean, I, we all know that. Um, they are addicted to it, quite frankly. Does um, Donald Trump have a Snapchat account? Uh, he does. We made the decision um, during the protest this summer to downrank um, his account. Um, we were more proactive, frankly, than other platforms. Again, in that respect, and uh, removed him from the platform um, before the Capitol Hill riots. Um, so, you know, so Snap is just a different, bigger audience than a lot of what you're used to in Washington. But yeah, we're twice as big as Twitter. Can you believe it? I had no idea. So I want to. I want to tap into
0: your. Your political brain. I, I tell folk that Peter Hamby has one of the more sober approaches to politics, especially the way media covers politics. It's you don't have, you're not, you know, bamboozled by the trappings. You just get to the facts. So I want to talk about impeachment 2.0. We've all known the outcome from the start. So for listeners that feel that Trump should be held accountable, but aren't enthusiastic about these proceedings. How should we be thinking about the political objectives of this proceeding, even if the legal outcome is clear?
2: I was talking about this with someone yesterday. I think that a lot of people are watching this trial. Most people are not watching this trial, just to circle back to what I was saying earlier. Um, But the Democratic House managers have done, I think, a remarkable job of creating a a story uh, of making what happened on January 6th and connecting it to Donald Trump feel visceral and powerful. Um, It almost feels like, you know, this probably isn't true, but that they hired the team that did the democratic national convention over the summer to help produce this (laughs) impeachment proceeding, because it's a show, you know, they were using video, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they produced like a sizzle reel and they're Mm -hmm. showing some of the more haunting images. And (laughs) Entertaining is the wrong word, but the impeachment trial, to me, again, as someone who has, I feel like, one foot out and one foot in the sort of insider political universe, substantially more gripping than the first impeachment trial. Substantially. Um, So, and partly, I mean, I think Raskin has a little bit more charisma than Adam Schiff, uh, and that's part of it. But the House managers have been really good. Like Nancy picked a crib They brought the heat. Um, we however, had and, and just and
0: just let me let me let me before you yeah. let's put a pin right there because I I find one of the things that the crew like yourself and everybody else in D.C. always wants to focus on the AOCs, the Ilyan Omar's, the mm-hmm. Ayanna Presley. So I love, by the way. Um, and Rashida Tlaib, but they free- they don't talk about the Stacey Plaskets. They don't talk about uh, my friend from Colorado or Jamie Raskin, these members of the house who do the work or the Lauren Underwoods and who are really shoning through throughout this week. So shout out to all of those house managers who really made a name for themselves this week.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, we could have a whole separate conversation about the nature of the conversation around the squad versus the nature of the conversation around members of color in Congress who represent moderate districts. Right. Um oh, that's a which, yeah. which which group represents more of the you know politically realistic future for the Democratic Party. Um, but will it matter? Like that's a good question. Uh, you know, Carl Rove said this past week that you know Trump is too sullied to run again. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I think this is just another thing in a long spectrum of events that can happen in the next few years that could tarnish uh, Donald Trump's reputation to the point where he doesn't run again, you know, on its own, will it make a difference? No, but in the full spectrum of, you know, he gave a speech, he may or may not have incited a riot. He got removed from Twitter. He might face legal investigations over his financial dealings, his power, has been removed substantially because he doesn't have a social media platform. He's not president anymore. The media will move on to shinier, freakier things like Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Green, um, freakier being a double entendre. Yeah, uh, I say. Somebody, <laughs> for somebody who's, you know, a little bit more
0: sober, you are reading the Daily Mail of all. Things. <laughs>
2: um, so will it change a lot of, minds in the short term perhaps not but you know it's important to see which Republican senators end up voting to convict and at the end of the day if Republicans are making a choice in 2024 about who they want to run again or who they want to run for the nomination is it someone new and different um, who might be trumpy in some respects or is it the guy who was impeached twice? Um, Who left office with, you know, tied with George W. Bush for the lowest approval ratings in modern times, who lost the White House, the Senate, failed to recapture the House like he has not been a majority party uh, leader in any way. You know, he is a huge problem for Republicans and the press is obsessed with Trumpism and whataboutism and whatever. It's just none of this is a majority political or majority governing Strategy, and I, I think Mitch McConnell understands that. But um, in the spectrum of of the last four years and the next three years, like this is one more thing that makes Trump toxic for history and for future elections. I mean,
0: do you really think they can close the? I mean, you speak to more. I, we both probably speak to a great deal of Republicans. One in South Carolina, in South Carolina politics. You're friends with all of them, so you either see them in court or yeah. you work with them. But from your journalistic perch, you talk to them to get you know, various news, you interview them on Good Luck America, etc. How are they processing Impeachment 2.0? Do you think they can close the chapter on Trump and move on? Or do some of them sense a more significant long-term erosion of support for the party they have to reckon with?
2: I mean, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, because you probably see them at Starbucks, uh, you know, on Maine and Gervais more than I do. (laughs) um,
0: When I order my my Grande uh, almond milk mocha latte frappuccino or something, whatever that shit is. I thought you are healthy now.
2: You're eating all all
0: those sugar and carbs. You're no, I'm actually really healthy now, man. I, I haven't had a drink since December 31st. Peter, raise your hand if you can say that. No. Nope. <laughs> I gave I've up fried foods. Last night. <coughs> <laughs> there we go. My <laughs> guy. Don't ever change. But, you know, Republicans I talk to, they are eager to, because for, for as red as South Carolina is, South Carolina really is an establishment. Uh, Republican state, of course, when you go to Horry County, You do have, you know, in York County, you do have some of those more right-leaning individuals. But it's really the Lindsey Grahams, the Henry McMasters. They're not these flaming Mm -hmm. right-wing QAnon liberals. Uh, I mean, conservatives, neither is Tim Scott. And so they are really ready to, and I know people are going to be like, but have you seen Lindsey Graham? I think that a lot of them are ready to just cut the albatross
2: off their neck that is Donald Trump. Yeah, and Lindsey's a good example. I want to go deeper on that, but... I think the, again, people will not like me saying this probably who are listening to this podcast, but like the the legal strategy, the defense strategy, the PR strategy around this impeachment trial for Republicans makes it very convenient for them to um, simultaneously acquit, but also say, um, because their theory of the case is you can't impeach a former president. I think what he did was wrong. I don't like Donald Trump. I want to move on. But I didn't think this was constitutional. Like it allows them to just have it both ways. And I do think that, you know, Lindsey would prefer to not have to talk about Donald Trump for a while. But his antenna, as you know, is always geared toward at least when there's an election around.
0: Like, Re-election. Lin- like, Lindsey is. The Lindsay, yeah, he morphs into whatever you need him to be at that particular time. It's Exactly. A yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, back in, he was elected in 08, I think, or no, he was elected in 04. Oh, four. He was
0: elected. Yeah. Oh, four. Yeah. And then,
2: yeah, he would go, he would do his Maverick thing on, you know, immigration or whatever for a few years. And then when the primary came around, he would circle back and be more conservative. Like, and so he's absolutely more of an establishment minded guy who would, you know, in if you were alone with him and some pals at a bar drinking at night, like he would talk, vast amounts of shit about Donald Trump and how vast. vast. Um, but he but clearly he doesn't do that publicly uh anymore. Um but yeah I mean like the the interesting path forward is illuminated by like Nikki Haley versus um Lindsey Graham, right? Like Nikki gave that interview former governor yeah and she was putting distance between herself and Trump which felt like the third or fourth time she has like run toward Trump and then run away from Trump. And maybe she's, maybe she's has a good strategy in mind. I mean, like she has, you know, trusted her gut at times and may, and that it's helped her politically, but um, the base still isn't running away from Donald Trump. Um, And so it's just interesting that Lindsey Graham is currently more aligned. I feel like with Republican base voters than Nikki Haley is, but one of those two wants to run for president. It's not like uh, It's Nikki. So I think she's like, like a lot of Republicans, unsure of the path forward. Like how much distance do we put between. And I think
0: that of- she realizes oh. that she can't be in that Trump lane. That Trump lane's not built for her. I think she yeah. realizes that that Tom Cotton and Matt Gates and Donald Trump himself or whomever probably fill that lane a lot better than she does.
2: Yeah, there's going to be absolutely some more like hair on fire mouth breathing like Republican person in that lane. And yeah. <laughs> like, and then she's not going to be full uh, she can't be full Ben Sass or whoever tries to be like never Trumpy if that person even tries to bothers to run because she did work because I mean, she can't but she can't be Larry Hogan is what you're talking about. Yeah exactly. Or, I mean she worked yeah. she signed up to work for Donald Trump and is on the record repeatedly defending him. So you know as much as I think Donald Trump, again in part because he doesn't have Twitter and I think that's an underrated part of this will fade from the. Oh, that brings me that brings
0: me to let's talk about your most recent Vanity Fair piece where you make the case that a Twitter and Facebook less Donald
2: Trump will fade away like Sarah Palin did unpack that for me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair this week, making the case that because Trump has been essentially deplatformed, he's much more dependent on the media, traditional media to give him oxygen. We forget that Trump had Twitter for like 13, 14 years. Like he was like he calling into cable news based off of his tweets back in like 2007, eight, nine, 10. Um, and as someone who covered Sarah Palin very closely from the minute she was picked in Dayton, Ohio as McCain's running mate for three more years, really until the Iowa state fair in 2011, when she was threatening to run for president in 2012. She was the center of the political universe for several years.
0: Like She created Nikki Haley, let's not forget. But yeah. for her rally in the South Carolina state capitol, where she took Nikki from running fourth to first, people forget that, not people in South Carolina don't, but people around the world do, that there would be no Nikki Haley today.
2: In 20, again, remember, Sarah Palin was thrust onto the global stage in the fall of 2008, In the summer of 2010, she was going around making endorsements in Republican primaries, and Trump will probably do this in in a year and a half. Winning primaries for Republicans, she was the uh, de facto leader of the Tea Party. She had enormous sway with the grassroots. And I looked it up the other day when I was writing this. In late May 2010, the South Carolina gubernatorial primary was June like 12th or something. Yeah, it's always second second Tuesday in June. Like in fourth place behind like henry mcmaster gresham barrett and our boy andre Andre bauer Bauer. andre bauer my (laughs) buddy that's my buddy yeah and nikki came in and or sorry sarah palin came in she made an endorsement i think ahead of time on twitter or facebook whatever did a rally our mutual friend rob godfrey who worked for mcmaster at the time gave me a blind quote for cnn calling it a earned media blowtorch. and within two weeks Haley went from being like back to like the governor of South Carolina, future star of the Republican party. And Palin did that across the board. And then that's on top of having a contract with Fox news, being obsessed over by not just the cable networks, but also like entertainment tonight and the Christian broadcasting network and access Hollywood and people magazine. Like she was the proto Trump in the fact that she married not grievance politics with white culture and celebrity. And no one had done that before Sarah Palin. Um, and it became a media obsession, and because of the parallels with Donald Trump, it's useful to look at the post presidency for Donald Trump, and especially again without Twitter, and think about it the same way. Like, Trump is going to occupy a large part of our mind for the next few years, but you know, he also might not in a few years. Uh, he might just fade as attention moves to other things. I mean, I'm, a, I'm just going to say that Marjorie Taylor Greene disagrees with you. She says that
0: the Republican Party is still very much Donald Trump's. Cute, cute pink mug, by the way. Still very much Donald Trump's party. And I tend to agree with her. Uh, but this past week, you know, we, we were just talking about Nikki. How do, how exactly does a Republican win a primary full of Trumpers, but still have enough distance for Trump to be competitive in a general? Is that possible
2: now? Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have a prescription. I, I think it's... Nikki Haley is a good example, again, of what that experiment will look like. I think, again, currently... I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is right. Like Trump is a loyalty test for Republicans, just that, you know, will that be the same next year? And then the year after that, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene herself is occupying more space in the public mind, or at least in the mind of political journalists than Donald Trump is. Like she has become the the center of attention, at least she was before the impeachment trial. It's just like, we we in the press are so obsessed with right now. It's like, it's a problem. We can't look around the corner and think about other possibilities. And, you know, Trump might run again and win the nomination in 2024, sure. But he also just might not. We have to be open to the I mean, data. And,
0: uh, and let me just dig just deeper on one more question because I have a growing disdain in my heart. I need to pray about it more for uh, <laughs> Josh Hawley. But you say that Josh Hawley will try to Xerox Trump but fail. I mean, is it because you think that they can successfully share Trumpism to dig a little deeper? Or do you just think Josh Hawley's a bad politician?
2: I think he's a bad politician in the sense that he's transparently not, he's pretending to be. And like, I think people can see through that. Um, Look, there is a set of the Republican base that just wants him to swear loyalty to Donald Trump. And like, he's leaning into that. And Josh, I mean, Josh Hawley's consultants are, the same folks who gave us Bobby Jindal, and people listening might not remember who Bobby Jindal is, but he was the governor of Louisiana, who was a Rhodes scholar, a like expert in healthcare policy and a nerd. And, and like, I don't say that in a mean way; he was like very smart. And his his consultants repackaged him when he ran for president in 2012 as a sort of Duck Dynasty red meat, like you know it America. It, it really it was super weird, and people saw through it. It didn't feel authentic, and so like is Josh Hawley being his authentic self by like embracing Trumpism and stop the steal. Like he doesn't believe that he went to Stanford and Yale. Like, come on, man. Um, so, you know, but I do think a, a po- there could be a politician out there in the Republican party who can sympathize with and understand the beating heart of the Republican base while also trying to bend it in another direction. And I'm not saying the party's his name, is Tom. To his like, name
0: is Tom Cotton as much as I,
2: don't care. For yeah, Tom it, it might be right. Like Tom Cotton has not dived fully into the deep end like Josh Hawley, um, even though a lot of people on the left think he's a maniac. Yeah. He, he, this is what I was going to say was the party is not going back to the Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, John McCain era. Yeah, It's still going to continue to be this sort of culture focused Fox news, Newsmax focused.
0: Don't, don't disrespect Owen. Oh, own I don't know how to pronounce it oh O-A-N-N. yeah O-A-N-N. <laughs> and then yeah whatever <laughs> yeah well, don't
2: disrespect them okay <laughs> yeah but there's, go, there's going to be somebody who comes along and is you know and maybe this makes that person more risky or sinister or dangerous or whatever but like there's going to be a republican who is able to marshal trumpism but make it somewhat more palatable to the suburbanites out there somehow. Like that, that will be the winning formula for whoever wins the next nomination and maybe the presidency. Um, but you can't just com- like expect to imitate Trump and Xerox the success, like, because only Donald Trump is Trump. He has a unique combination of just shamelessness, a willingness to wear his ignorance on his sleeve, celebrity power that other people just don't have. So the next nominee is going to have to bend the party in a slightly different direction. You know, you just
0: you just quoted uh, Cleveland Sellers, my father. He would always tell me. He he swears by this. He said the difference between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump is that Richard Nixon had shame, and Donald Trump has
1: none. This episode is brought to you by Doctor Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Doctor Squatch is here to help. They have high performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com/slash spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout.
0: I got two more questions for you because I know you're this is a Valentine's Day weekend and I know you're you know <laughs> at the beach, so you're going to enjoy yourself. So two more questions. You've been going hard on on uh, the Lincoln Project, I guess, or the group formerly known as the Lincoln Project after the recent resignation of their leader yeah. on Twitter. What role, if any, do they play post-Trump? And even from a larger perspective, do the never-Trump Republicans and Republican-leaning independents just stick with Democrats in 2022? I mean, you talked about not being able to see the future. I'm asking you about the
2: future as a journalist. What do you see happening? Well, one, I don't think the Lincoln Project, which continued operating even after the election, really defined what their mission was is or was supposed to be after the election um and my complaints with the lincoln project aren't necessarily about what a lot of people might expect like they and bill maher asked steve schmidt about this last night on hbo like you guys made a lot of money on this from people who loved your web videos and Hate Donald Trump. Um, and to be my- specific, I want to say they made eighty-seven
0: million dollars, or and yes, I, th- I think fifty of it, fifty-five of it went to um, consultant groups that were associated with founders or board members.
2: Yes, exactly. And you know, in the course of the revelations about John Weaver, one of their consultants who was fired for you know sending creepy and predatory text messages to young men. You know, it was real that he also had a long history of financial problems. And, you know, this the Lincoln Project was a ticket to pay off debts for a lot of people and make some money. And Steve Schmidt, you see him on MSNBC every night. He's coming to you live from his open concept kitchen in Park City. Uh, You know, that guy has a lot of money. Remember, he also tried to get Howard Schultz to run for president for all you resistance liberals who love Steve Schmidt.
0: Anyway. And And they also apparently weren't as close to John McCain as they tried to let on to anyone who would listen.
2: Yeah, I, I have to go back and look this up, but I believe Schmidt was not invited to McCain's funeral in part because Megan
0: said, Megan said, Schmidt nor Weaver were invited to McCain's funeral, and to and he
2: would not spit on them if they were on fire is a quote from Megan McCain. I believe that. I mean, as someone again who covered Palin, Steve Schmidt helped select Sarah Palin, and when Palin went haywire, Steve Schmidt went on background to reporters trying to escape blame for it. Um, Steve Schmidt gave Sarah Palin literally the talking points about Obama that he pals around with terrorists, which opened a very dark seam in our politics. Um, So it's remarkable that he's celebrated as a resistance hero on MSNBC now. But the point at the larger point that needs to be made about the Lincoln Project that's not being talked about is a variety of Democratic groups ran experiments in the fall, summer and fall of 2020, including Priorities USA and some others. And the Biden campaign eventually adopted this kind of testing where they measured whether certain television ads actually motivated or persuaded voters. Did X TV ad or digital ad change a voter's mind? Oh yeah. yeah. The kinds of ads that the Lincoln Project ran, these slash and burn ads that made fun of Donald Trump, that mocked him, mocked his family, made fun of his weight, even just showed his face. Those ads were shown to cause backlash among voters. So if you are a liberal predisposed to hating Donald Trump, you love those ads and you gave money to Lincoln Project. But if you were either an on the fence Republican voter or a persuadable voter, like those ads made you like run back into your corner because they didn't offer a message. It was just pure negativity. And the voters that Democrats need, as you know, are are low information voters, voters of color, people who don't follow politics very closely. The ads that end up working in the campaign, according to these experiments, and I wrote about this for Vanity Fair, if anyone wants to Google it, were ads that were just like Boring to political insiders, but ads about healthcare and education and you know the sort of simple, pragmatic, kitchen table issues that you know that might seem even transactional, but like motivate voters. So there are questions as to whether the Lincoln Project not only pocketed millions of dollars, but did their ads actually I mean, work, or did their ads actually worked on Twitter? Them,
0: right? They they worked on Twitter, Peter, and right. that's all that matters. You forget. <laughs> Yeah. Twitter, Twitter is all that matters. Let me ask the last question before I let you go, because I'm I'm pretty sure, for for those who don't know, Peter Hamby, he is a he is someone who probably will be making his own chocolates for Valentine's Day and blowing up his own balloons. So I, I want to be able to let him go, so <laughs> that he can he can do that. He he is a romantic type. There is <laughs> a recent Ezra Klein piece in the New York Times that we're both fans of that talks about California and liberalism,
1: mm-hmm.
0: particularly how woke politics has become a parody of itself. Talk about what you and folks like Ezra Klein mean when you talk about the politics as, quote, aesthetic and what the risk is for the left and going too far on symbolism like renaming schools and painting Black Lives Matter on streets, which I'm not really a fan of. And not far enough on kitchen table issues like you just mentioned, like affordable housing and rooting out white supremacy in police departments. And what the hell is going on in San Francisco? Like they just I mean, I, this is. As somebody who has never voted for a Republican or in a Republican primary, who is a progressive liberal like myself, in, even in South Carolina, what the hell are they doing in San Francisco?
2: I I cannot explain that.
0: And the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed. I um, love London. Shout out. She's coming on the show, but it's not her. It's the school board.
2: I know. <laughs> You're that's like, what I'm saying. <laughs> like she's She is a progressive person of color who thinks that renaming... The schools to get rid of the names like Lincoln or Francis Scott Key is a huge waste of time and a distraction because there are bigger fucking issues right now. <laughs> like yeah. Can't go to school. Can we put that um,
0: on a T-shirt? That should be the name. How about this, Bill? Uh, Bill Simmons, me and Peter, we got to work out our contracts with our respective people, but we want to do a podcast called "There Are Bigger Fucking Issues." That yeah. should be the name of our podcast. Dude,
2: that's like this is one reason that you have always been such a good source and and pal to me over the years because you grew up in denmark you come out of the civil rights movement before social media like it can't be stressed enough that durable political movements can be built online but they happen with real world organizing with real world contacts and conversation and black leaders know that better than anybody Um, Itan Hirsch uh, is a political scientist at Tufts who wrote a great, one of my favorite pieces of the 2020 election called, political hobbyism is, is ruining politics. And his point was sort of what we're talking about. If you are a very online white person or not maybe non-white person, and you spend a lot of your time posting on Instagram uh, and Twitter about politics, and this is true for younger people especially, you start to think that like, that's what politics is. And the Ezra Klein piece was interesting because he talked about the contrast of politics as aesthetic, which in my mind is you're either like a, you know, a white socialist bro in Brooklyn who likes to post on the internet, or you just like go on Instagram and like, you know, post a lot about RBG uh, versus politics as a program, which is what, I think the Biden administration really believes in because Biden is such an old school guy that politics is about governing and deals and getting incremental progress done. And, you know, I, you know, virtue signaling white liberals are very loud on the Internet. But to the Biden campaign and now administration's credit, they realize that their base voters are. Khaki wearing suburbanites and outside of Charlotte, and you know, <laughs> black folks in the PD. Uh, yep. And um, that is really where like politics is. It's not on Twitter, it's not on social media. And I just think it's really, really important to keep that as your North Star. If you get into politics, that what's online is, you know, Twitter is in real life became a, a, a saying during the campaign. And I've been saying that since like 2012, but you have. Um, but Snapchat is real life. Let's not let's never forget that. <laughs> it's real life in the sense that I will say this: being almost twice as big as Twitter, we are in the pockets of many more. You said, you said, you said that four, You said that four times. I just it just has to be stressed, my friend. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we we agree that um, we do. You know, a lot of online stuff is a distraction.
0: Well, Peter Hamby, happy Valentine's Day weekend to you and yours. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the Bucari Sellers podcast. Thank you for being a friend now for over a decade. We, As soon as the Rona lets us be great, man, we got to we gotta come on over here and party again and, and hang out together. I look forward to that. I can't wait to go to Five Points with you. Oh, my goodness. We're going so <laughs> we're to we're, we're, we're be, <laughs> be ready to go to bed at 10 o'clock. Know, All right, brother. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Before I let you go, I wanted to take a moment to show some love to my good friend U.S. Virgin Islands delegate Stacey Plaskett. You saw the blue-caped outfit that set Twitter on fire last week, and you saw her as an impeachment manager steal the show. Here's a clip.
3: Make no mistake. The violence was not just foreseeable to President Trump. The violence was what he deliberately encouraged. As early as September... Trump set the precedent that when asked to denounce violence, he would do the opposite and encourage it. Now, if the president had only said something once about fighting to stop the steal and violence erupted, there would be no way to know he intended to incite it or saw it coming. But just as the president spent months spreading his big lie of the election, he also spent months cultivating groups of people who following his command, repeatedly engaged in real, dangerous violence. And when they did, when the violence erupted as a response to his calls to fight against the souling election, he did not walk it back. He did not tell them no. He did the opposite, the opposite. He praised and encouraged the violence so that it would continue. He fanned the flame of violence, and it worked. You'll see this over time. These very groups and individuals whose violence the president praised helped lead the attack on January 6. And that's how we know clearly that President Trump deliberately incited this and how we know he saw it coming
0: so first things first i'm glad that folks are now realizing what a lot of us have known for some time and that's that stacy is dope she's been dope for a long time but more importantly i want to draw your attention to the title before her name and that's delegate she's a delegate from the u.s virgin islands not a full representative in the house of representatives what that means Is in all her dopeness, Delegate Plaskett can propose legislation in Congress, but she can't actually vote on it if it comes to the floor. She does have a voting committee, which is important, but she represents a territory in the U.S. Virgin Islands where its residents pay federal taxes, but she has no floor vote in ultimately determining where those resources go. So it's essentially a colony, but in the United States. We call them territories and they can elect dope elected officials like Stacey, where they can't vote on the floor. So what do we do? We talk a lot about voting rights and passing a new modernized Voting Rights Act, and we should. But I want us to expand our focus on voting rights to democracy reforms. That looks like voting rights and election security and D.C. statehood. It also looks like making every delegate a full representative in the House of Representatives. If you pay federal taxes, then the person you elect to send to Washington should have a final vote on where those dollars go. We can't just appreciate a talent like Stacy Plaskett without fighting for her and the residents of the U.S. Virgin Islands to get a vote on the floor. And that's that on that. We'll see you Thursday for another dope show and another dope episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast.